0: Radio Land, Podcastville, and all the ships at sea. My name is Lori Weiner, and you are listening to the LARB Radio Hour, brought to you by reader-supported Los Angeles Review of Books. Joining me today is my co-host and the editor-in-chief of the Los Angeles Review of Books, Tom Lutz. How are you, Tom?
1: I'm good, Lori. I'm glad to be back in the studio, back in the radio show. That's
0: nice. Yeah. Yeah, really nice. Today, we're going to listen to an event that Tom and I did in San Francisco in November at the Jewish Community Center.
1: Yeah, our board member, Andrew Manicos, helped set this up with the people at the Jewish Community Center. It was a fantastic event. We had three authors and Jose Choir, Dr. Loco, and this is going to be the first of the two shows that were put together from that event.
0: This one featuring authors Robbie Alamedin and Jade Chang. And we'll start with Tom's introduction to the event at the event.
1: We have three great writers that we're going to be talking to tonight, and two of them are of Chinese heritage. And you all know the curse. May you live in interesting times. And these are incredibly interesting times for literature, for the written word. And for the
0: American election.
1: (laughs) Oh my God. Yes, that as well. The old model that used to support literary activity and used to support things like the Los Angeles Review of Books has fallen apart. And whatever new beast is being born is not entirely born yet. Many of you are old enough to remember the Sunday Supplement book review. It is gone. There's one left. It's about half the size that it used to be, the New York Times book review. But you remember when you had one here in San Francisco, and there was one in Washington, and there was one in Boston, and there was one in Chicago, and they're all gone. And we started Los Angeles Review Books about six years ago, in part in response to watching that change happen. My introduction to literary culture was from reading the Sunday Supplement in my newspaper, and I thought that it was a shame that that part of our literary culture was disappearing. I'm trained as a literary historian right down the road here at Stanford, where I did my PhD, so I know that the review of books and culture is more than a buying guide, it's more than a kind of place to kind of crowdsource opinion. It's a fundamental part of a democratic culture, and so we're trying at Los Angeles Review of Books to figure out what that should look like as we move forward here now in this environment we are a reader supported operation and so we have a membership program like NPR and i assume most of you are already members the few of you who are not you should join immediately with me tonight is lori Weiner. lori was the theater critic at the la times is working on a book on oscar hammerstein which she's going to figure out some way to put into every interview i will and She's one of the founding editors of LARB as well. We are going to start tonight with Rabi Alameddine. And Jose Cuero is going to flute him onto the stage. Each of the writers picked their flute. Rabi Alamadin. <laughs> Ravi is the author of seven works of fiction, and his latest is The Angel of History, and we're thrilled to have him. I've been a fan for many, many years, and thrilled to be able to meet him and talk to him tonight.
2: Thank you. I was supposed to come up dancing, but I couldn't find the beat. <laughs>
0: you was, to your own beat. I know, oh. I
2: know. I was supposed to do the cobra dance from Cobra Woman.
0: Yeah, we're disappointed.
2: I know. So am I. <laughs> Maybe on the way out.
0: Robbie's new book is quite wonderful. It's among many other things. It is also a memoir or a recounting of of the AIDS years, the AIDS epidemic. And in the afterward, you talk about a friend who was a poet and performance artist named Wayne Corbett who died in 97, whose life and work were a big part of this book. I just wondered if you could tell us a little bit about him and the connection to the book.
2: Well, Wayne... We weren't close friends, we collaborated, I was painting at the time, and we collaborated on a couple of shows, and I was completely stunned by his performances, if you want to call it. He was much more a performance artist, and he would read these poems that were not just mind-bogglingly good, but revealing, that made me uncomfortable, and I was liberated by that. It wasn't just that he talked about his sexuality and, and being a sexual masochist. He was a black man in a white world. And he was able to put the two things together, that they began to reflect each other, the idea of humiliation on multiple fronts. And I was just blown away by it.
1: This book, like the Hakawadi and like, in a sense, like many of your books, It's not at all a kind of straight narrative, let's just say that.
2: I don't do anything straight.
1: (laughs) There are stories within stories. There are people who are telling stories about the stories that are happening. There's a kind of nesting of stories, like a kind of hundred ring circus of stories. Mm -hmm. And that is your basic method, isn't it?
2: Yeah, I don't know if it's mine. I use it. But again, for most of Western culture, literature is usually what I would call building a house. You put one brick on top of another. That's really interesting, and I love it, obviously. But I also come from a culture where sort of literature is much more a weaving of a carpet, where threads go in different ways, and they all come and make different things. They come in, they go out, they come in, and they Mm -hmm. go out. So it's just a different way of looking at it. My writing sort of reflects how my mind works.
0: In your current book... You do go between places and times in this very seamless, kind of dreamlike way. And two of the main characters in the book are Satan and the Devil.
1: Satan so and, de- and Death. Right. I'm
0: sorry. Yes, but there's also human characters. Aside from how you think and how you live your life, are there any writers that influenced the way you flow between time and space?
2: Most writers. The thing is that I don't see. In many ways, my writing is that different from... We were talking about uh, V.S. Naipaul. It's just that I use time differently. Salman Rushdie did it years and years ago. Cortazar did it years and years ago. Borges, a lot of... Javier Marias repeats things over and over and over and over. There are all kinds of writers who do similar things. I think we all, in many ways, do the same thing. Part of the problem, I think, with a lot of literature that comes out today is we've seen, for a lot of people, it seems that, how to describe it, social realism is the only way to be able to tell a story, and I come from different cultures that tell stories in many, many different ways.
0: Uh, do you think American culture is particularly partial to uh, realism? Oh God, yes,
2: yes. Mm-hmm. I once made this comment that sometimes when you read the best American short stories, it sometimes feels that it's the same writer. They're all wonderful stories, but they sort of sometimes use the same thing, whereas if you read the best European short stories, they come from all over the place and tell all kinds of different stories. Mm -hmm. There's a way we're isolated in how we look at stories. It's as if lately, in the last 30 or 40 years, we have not allowed, you know, even the... The immigrant writers, even those of us who come from other places, we're still swallowed in by a literary culture that likes things in order. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. We never liked order. Mm
1: -hmm. Now, speaking of immigrant writers, you say at one point in the book that you call yourself an expat if you feel superior to the place you happen to be at the time, and you call yourself an immigrant if you look up to the place where you happen to be at the time. Yes. And so I want to ask, how are you feeling these days? (laughs)
2: I am an expat to Trump and an immigrant to Bernie Sanders. Uh, No, I actually don't consider myself either. I am an American. I've been here for way too long. Mm -hmm. Um, But I am also Lebanese. So for me, I've never been able to hyphenate. I've always considered myself an American And sometimes I think I'm not an American and I'm not Lebanese. It's a difficult thing. I don't know, for me, I find that most writers are a little insane. Except for me, I'm (laughs) well-adjusted. A little off-kilter. We fit in a place and we don't fit in a place. And we belong in a place and we don't belong in a place. Because there's this whole thing as to where one writes and how one writes. And I think if you belong in a culture, you can't write about it. But if you're really outside of that culture, you can't write about it either because you can't see mm-hmm. it. So it's the straddling of being in and out of a culture that makes for interesting work.
0: Mm-hmm. Another talent of Rabi's is, and you should check this out if you don't know that already, his Twitter feed is quite extraordinary, particularly about this election. He's got some amazing stuff. But you Twittered something about the Nobel Prize uh, for <laughs> literature. And I do want to ask you about that. The Twitter, I believe, was... Do you mind if I steal oh, your no, thunder? No, absolutely. The was, New York
2: Times did. So did the Guardian. <laughs> so did.
0: Was giving Bob Dylan the Nobel Prize for Literature, was like giving Mrs. Fields five stars for culinary... Three Michelin stars. Please. Okay, so I get it wrong, but you get, you get it. I think it's interesting, as a proponent of the American popular song, and this is my getting in Hammerstein... Yeah, I knew it was going to um, happen... I do think that words wedded to music do something different than words alone on the page, so therefore I was not offended by the award, but I certainly understand how you or Philip Roth or other writers of literature would be. Could you talk about that? Sure.
2: I wasn't offended. I found it silly, uh, which is a big difference. Mm -hmm. I actually think he is a wonderful songwriter. I would give it to Joni Mitchell before I'd give it to him, but that's another story. Mm -hmm. The thing is that the Nobel Prize is a little different. It was given for somebody who changed poetry. We did not give it to Wallace Stevens. We did not give it to Elizabeth Bishop. We did not give it to Franz Wright or Sharon Olds. We gave it to Bob Dylan. Are you kidding me? I mean, this has nothing to do with how wonderful he is. So when I put that tweet, it was picked up by newspapers and I started getting attacked like crazy. And I started thinking, have you people ever read poetry? I mean, you know, you could call him a poet, I am not objecting to that. You can call it literature, I'm not objecting to that. I'm objecting to calling it great literature. When somebody like Sharon Olds is still around, when somebody like John Ashbery is still around, you don't do that. And this is just the poets, and this is just American poets, let alone, you know, Claudio Magris or Javier Marias or... uh, No, no. The funniest thing is that when I wrote this, I started getting attacked. And I've been mm-hmm. attacked a lot by Trump supporters. Yeah. And I can tell you that Bob Dylan fans are meaner. <laughs> now, Surprising. they can form more coherent sentences, <laughs> but they're meaner.
1: Well, a good sentence is meaner than a bad sentence. That, that's the whole point. Right. <laughs> I never
2: take the Trump supporters. Whenever they attack me, I don't take it seriously. But those Bob Dylan fans were
1: bitches. <laughs> Now, speaking of poetry, I had a professor in my very first English class as an undergraduate, as an older undergraduate, that said, a poem a day keeps the doctor away, which is, uh, I think, might be true. I'm not sure. Not entirely. But you have been on a poem a day project for a while now. Mm -hmm. Can you talk about the, the blog?
2: I was just talking about that, I maybe 12 years ago or so, I heard this poet called Phillips read and I was blown away, I thought he was amazing and I couldn't understand the thing he was saying. And I realized that I did not understand poetry so I started basically getting a poem every day and typing it out and trying to see how it works and then I started putting it online And now it's, I think I hit 400,000 views or something like that, which is for poetry, it's just amazing. So I love that I'm teaching myself. It's become a passion of mine. But I tend to do that. I tend to teach myself. Last month, I started taking piano lessons for the first time. I'm 57. Mm -hmm. And I believe that by 2197, I will be able to play the Goldberg Variations. (laughs) The whole idea of sort of the poetry blog or my piano is doing something that is mine, even though in many ways the poetry blog is public. That I have no expertise in. I'm learning. It takes me a long time to figure out why a poem works or why a poem is good or or any of that.
1: Well, being lost is such a thrilling. It is the most amazing thing. Yeah,
2: especially for a mind like mine who can actually believe that I know shit.
0: You open this book with a great quote from Milan Kundera, and it just started me thinking about him, because I hadn't read him in a long time, from the Book of Laughter and Forgetting. And this quote, actually, it could be the opening quote for the other two authors, actually, that we're speaking to tonight. The struggle of man against power is the struggle of memory against forgetting. Could you just talk about that quote and what it means to sure.
2: you? Sure. See, for me, I've been fascinated with the idea of what we remember and what we forget and the whole relationship between the two. Because you cannot remember without forgetting and you cannot forget without remembering. So it's a tension. But what I'm interested in is that in most cultures, the dominant culture is invested in the members forgetting, basically. So Trump can come up because we've forgotten everything that has come up before that and the dominant culture, whether it's the government or the gatekeepers of culture or whatever you want to call them, keep working at making us forget. And it hit me particularly with the AIDS years that all of a sudden there's no one who remembers what happened. It's as if all of a sudden, oh, lots of people died, that was sad, well, you killed them. And that was an important thing, that for a while, Hillary Clinton can say that Nancy Reagan was a pioneer in bringing AIDS attention. And it was only those of us of a certain age that were able to remember, because it is not part of our history anymore. Mm -hmm. We pick and choose. We can go to a war. Right now, the United States is bombing five countries. I doubt anybody in the audience can name them. We are trained to forget, to go on with life. Which is a wonderful thing because really, who wants to remember everything? But at the same time, it's important to remember. So, this tension of man against power is a tension between memory and forgetting. Well, that is the angel of history. Yes. That,
1: that is the center of the
2: book. They're basically, the Walter Benjamin fragment. Mm-hmm.
0: I just got back from New York City. There's a re- revival of a musical, again, musicals, called Falsettos. Mm-hmm. And seeing it was so incredibly moving because everyone of our age who was in the audience it was remembering. It's so strange. Like, it just seemed like the exact right time mm-hmm. that everyone needed to remember suddenly, Absolutely. communally. And your book also is part of this. And there was
2: a couple of documentaries, and The Normal Heart came out on HBO. Mm-hmm. Because I also believe there's something like collective memory and it was time to remember because there were lots of things that were happening that made us forget again it's not just about aids it's we go through cycles and who gets to remember is basically decided by the culture and some of us are trying to force a change
1: well yeah. thank you for helping us remember thank i you. you know i would like to talk to you all night but we can't so i just want to ask you one last thing which is why do you think that the Los Angeles Review of Books is the most important <laughs> publication in the world?
2: Because it's way too fabulous for words, even though we use words. <laughs>
1: <laughs> Thank you so much, Rabi al yeah. the angel of history.
0: Listening to the LARB radio hour coming to you from Emerson College in the heart of Hollywood. And now it's time for this week's book recommendation.
3: This is Kate Wolf, editor at large for LARB, and we have back in the studio Diane Hansen, who's the sexy books editor for Toshin. Diane, what's your recommendation? I have a new book coming out called Ren Hang. For years, I've wanted to do something about pornography in China. Mm. And it's very, very hard. It's illegal. So finding these people was difficult. And then people started talking to me about this guy Ren Hang. Have you seen Ren Hang's stuff? It was all over social media. I tried to contact him. I had no luck. Six months later, I was contacted by his representative because his English was very bad. Ren is a 28-year-old young man from the north of China who came down to Beijing, found college boring, and started photographing his friends, male and female, naked. Uh What really caught my attention was that Ren Hang seemed to find a lot of Chinese guys with kind of big penises Mm. and photographed them up on the roof of his building, out in the woods. In all kinds of perilous situations, and completely fully nude and even in sexual situations, women with men, women with women, men with men. He kind of represented, to me, a Terry Richardson, early Terry Richardson sort of sexuality, lots of times clean white walls. And it just seems so modern, and not the image that we had of China, and so, when I finally was able to have some contact with him and figure it out, he's a heavily depressed man. Mm. He couldn't find anything to relieve his depression, and he found photographing his friends naked made him feel better. <laughs> and so, he never plans anything, he just moves with the moment. It makes him really hard to interview because they'll say, Well, what do these photos mean? They don't mean anything. Um, what was your plan when you did this? I have no plan. It's all just whatever comes before him, he photographs and he does it till he feels happy. Wow. How does he, does he distribute the photos on the internet or how are they He out does China? have a website. His websites get closed down and then he just starts another one. He's on Instagram ah. and he self-published eight little books in very limited editions Out of China. He's had now shows all over the world. So, this is his first real book with a real publisher. Wow. And it's beautiful. And it's, uh, I think, unexpected for Mm. anyone who sees it and not just for the big dicks. For me, though, that was the important thing. Right. Because when I did the big penis book, I was not able to find. Asian models for my book. So this is a myth buster. Because they're not posing. Nobody is photographing them. And it just kept that ugly myth going and hurting all these poor men out there who were laboring, you know, under misrepresentation. And so Ren Hang has come along to blow the myth away. Wow. Well, that sounds like definitely worth checking out. And what's the title of the book again? It is Ren Hang. And it's going to be out... Soon or January 20th January 20th So that would be a great way To cure your depression Around the inauguration (laughs) (laughs) Okay Thanks for the recommendation And for coming back You are welcome
0: And now To our interview With Jade Chang
1: Next Jade Chang (laughs) jade chang is a journalist she's written for the la times for the bbc for glamour for metropolis for lots of places she is also now a debut novelist the wangs versus the world is the new novel just out about a month ago
0: i loved your book Thank you so much. It's a book, it's about a second generation Chinese family, is that fair to say?
4: Actually, essentially they're first generation. The children are the first generation born here in America. Right, mm-hmm. I yeah. forgot
0: that, yes, it can the, it can the definition of second generation. Yeah. But you talk about, well, it's a generation removed from kind of the original trauma. Like I've noticed recently there's a big batch of Holocaust films made from the point of view of the grandchildren of the people who are in the Holocaust, which is completely different point of view, because they're mm-hmm. removed from the trauma by a generation, and they right. talk about it with a different perspective. Mm-hmm. And I, I loved that perspective in your book, The characters realize that they have a life that is not as filled with suffering and challenges as their parents, and they feel a little guilty about it sometimes. Occasionally, uh, <laughs> and they also feel very
4: lucky at the same
0: time. Yes. Yeah. But would you, would you say that you're addressing the immigrant experience?
4: Yeah, I mean, I think, I think I can't help but address the immigrant experience, you know, as someone whose parents came here to go to grad school, that's where they met, and then I was born in Columbus, Ohio, of all places. Yeah, I mean, that, the immigrant experience is my experience in the same way that the American experience is also my experience. Mm-hmm.
1: Yeah. We should say that The Wangs versus the World is a family story. There's a, uh, the father, who mm-hmm. is an immigrant, and uh, he has three children. And they are, they're not immigrants, they're all born in the U.S. Right. And which one are you?
4: (laughs) (laughs) I'm all of them.
1: (laughs) No, you have said that this is not autobiographical, but obviously there are aspects of it that do have something to do with your experience.
4: Yeah, so the family story is actually the same as my family's background. So the father, Charles Wang, he comes from a family that was quite wealthy in China. They had owned land for generations. And then because of the rise of communism, they had to flee. And he ended up growing up in Taiwan. And then he came to America to make a fortune. And my family, it's kind of the same story on both my father's side and my mother's side. They both come from families that had been landowners in China for generations. My father's parents were actually both spies for the nationalist army against the Japanese. So they really had to flee under cover of night, you know, and went to Taiwan. And my mother's family also fled to Taiwan. And that desire to kind of, that sense of having this homeland that they had never seen, that sense of having these kind of ancestral acres that were lost that were unfairly taken from them that's something that drives Charles in the book and that is definitely something that I grew up being very aware of
0: I read that you wrote a novel before this one, and you didn't sell it, and then Mm -hmm. you went right back to work, which I very much admire, and you wrote this one, and this is what we would call, I think, a hot book right now. I mean, I think (laughs) there's a great awareness of it, Mm -hmm. and I just wondered if you could talk about what you learned in that period between books and what you learned about narrative possibly when you didn't sell the first book.
4: Oh, well, I could give a whole lecture on, that, on sure. that question. But, you know, that first book, there were a couple of extenuating circumstances. That first book, I was sending it out in 2009, which was a terrible time for the publishing industry. And for
0: every industry. For every
4: industry. One of the agents that I sent it to wrote back and said, this book is great, but we don't even know if there's gonna be a publishing industry next year, so I don't know what to do. <laughs> so it was a bad time all around. But I think there are a few things. I mean, I think that I just got a little older and had more to say. And when I started writing The Wangs Versus The Worlds, I, for one, I just, I really was excited to set it in 2008. I really wanted to set it in this time where it felt like the whole world was collapsing and anything could happen. Mm -hmm. And the other thing was I really went into it wanting to write a different kind of immigrant novel. I really wanted to write something that was big and fun and exciting and a little bit glamorous and glitzy, but that still dealt with kind of serious ideas and big ideas, hopefully. And I feel like I grew up reading books that were very much just stories of struggle and pain and being an outsider. And that wasn't the kind of story I wanted to tell. I wanted to tell a story in which this Chinese family that is also an American family is completely central to the story and completely central to this country.
1: I think it's what Laurie said earlier about the generational, the difference yeah. between generational stories. I first yeah. noticed a change in the kind of immigrant novel, in the field yeah. of the immigrant novel. When I read Amy Fan's The Re-Education of Cherry Chuang. About, I haven't read it. Do you know this book? It's about, uh, it's about five, seven years ago. Okay. And in it, Cherry is like the kids in your book. She's an American.
2: Mm-hmm. And
1: her brother is building... Uh, housing developments in Orange County. It's an Orange County okay. setting. Yeah. And at one point, the brother moves back to Vietnam.
4: Uh-huh.
1: Cherry ends up with a heartbreaks of various kinds, and she goes right. decides to go join him in Vietnam. And she thinks he's somehow kind of going back to the home country. What uh-huh. he's actually doing is building housing developments like Orange County outside of... Oh. Um, Ho Chi Minh City. That's and, right? So it's, It is funny, right? Yeah. It was the first time where the return voyage becomes right. a central trope that I had noticed. And it happens in the Hakawati, Rabi's novel, yeah. where he goes back because his grandfather's yeah. dying, right? his protagonist. And so this kind of the trip to the home country yeah. and all of the weirdness that can mean is something that's happening.
4: Yeah, and a thinking of the home country as a desirable thing, you know, not as a thing to flee, an accent to rid yourself of, you know, but as a valued part of your identity and your being as well.
0: You grew up in the Valley. I did. Los Angeles. And I read that you mm-hmm. were a great fan of Kerouac as a young person, a young leader. <laughs> that is true. And I just wanted to ask you, and the, the, uh, his rhythms, I read, like, yeah. you love his rhythms. But I was just wondering uh, about, you know, we all have to forgive our favorite authors their faults because mm-hmm. they all have faults. Did the sexism. Except present company
1: excluded. Uh,
0: <laughs> yeah. Ex- yeah. Of course. Yeah. Yes, precisely. And Donald Trump. I was just wondering if mm-hmm. the sexism bothered you. At you know,
4: all. I was reading on the road when I was like 13 years old. so I don't think I even noticed, honestly. Uh (laughs) Yeah, and to be truly honest, I don't think that I've read it since then. So that wasn't... But, you know, I mean, we grew up, or I grew up in such a different time I think that kind of sexism sadly was what I saw day to day in all these books by male writers and even though it's something that I never would have stood for in real life Mm -hmm. somehow literature felt like a different world you know and Mm -hmm. I don't know. I do I do
1: know. We should say that this novel for people who haven't read it yet is very funny. Thank uh, you. Right? It's not, I don't think you'd call it a comic novel, really. It's a dramatic novel, but it's got a lot of humor. And part of that humor is around the son and the family and his yes. desire to be a stand up comic. Yes. And he's really bad at it.
4: Or he, is he brilliant? He gets brilliant, better. You know? <laughs> no, he does. Yeah. So, two things. One, I think that there is sometimes in literature, there's this distinction between the funny and the serious, that something that's fun, something that's enjoyable, can't also be intelligent. And I just reject that idea entirely. You know, I feel like the two things can and should exist together. I think that it's really a failing of ours to not see them as being kind of intertwined. So I love stand-up comedy. I think that I probably secretly or not so secretly would have loved to be a stand-up. It's a hard life, though, guys. (laughs) Are there any
1: agents out there?
4: (laughs) (laughs) But it was so fun researching that. So I wrote two stand-up sets for him, and it was... You know, I did a lot of different things to research that. I watched a ton of stand-up on YouTube. I saw a lot of people in real life. I took an improv class because I really wanted to know what it would be like to stand in front of a group of people and try to make them laugh and fail.
0: <laughs> well, it's surprisingly yes. exciting, actually. <laughs> yeah, yeah you, you do convey that. You... Uh... <laughs> You mean right now? <laughs> no. no. <laughs> you have worked as a journalist. You were yes. working as a journalist. Are you going to continue to work as a journalist, or are you going to just be writing fiction now? I'm not sure yet. I think. I, I mean, do so, you like journalism? Do you? Yeah, you I it? do.
4: I absolutely like journalism. I think that it's such good training for writing fiction, and it's also. I mean, it's amazing, right? As a journalist, you get to go in and talk to all sorts of people. You get to sit down and ask them questions about anything. And one of the things I realized as a journalist was that anyone will tell you anything. People want to be seen, they want to be heard, they want to be asked questions, and they'll just give it up, (laughs) Whatever, whatever it is. But the other thing is, you know, I think that working as a journalist really was helpful in terms of learning how to write dialogue, because you tape these interviews, and then often Mm -hmm. you transcribe them yourself. And so I was literally writing down how people really
0: speak.
1: We were having a really fun conversation about comedy, I felt, and then it turned into a conversation about journalism. I don't know. Well,
0: I didn't bring up musicals. (laughs) I love
1: musicals. (laughs) I just just wanted to return to Uh comedy. And it's related to your journalism career, because you had a, a period where you were writing for Jay Peterman, (laughs)
4: <laughs> right: which is... So if you guys remember the J. Peterman catalog, which is where Elaine worked on Seinfeld, it's real. <laughs> I don't know if J. Peterman "The Man is real, though I like to imagine that mm-hmm. as played on Seinfeld, mm-hmm. he is real. But yeah, it was my first paying job out of college, mm-hmm. and it was very cushy. I researched the love of George O'Keefe and Alfred Steiglitz. And, but little did I know that there's a whole secret understory to that that I didn't learn about until years later. And I also researched 1930s Shanghai. And then I just read all these history books and then gave them all these notes on it that maybe they used to create a lovely
1: blouse. I don't know. <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> that was part Shanghai and part Georgia. Yes, yes, yeah. Oh, yeah.
0: exactly. Did you travel for this novel? Yes and no.
4: So I never actually did that entire... Ro- so the, the family goes on a road trip in the novel, and they go sort of through the southern states because I really wanted to write about Austin. I really wanted to write about New Orleans. So they go through the southern states and then up to New York, and I give them a good reason for taking that long route. Yes, you do. I promise. But I have never driven that, but you know how I researched it was there was this entire subculture on YouTube of long-haul truckers who record, using like dashboard cam video, record their routes, and they play them, you know, fast-forwarded, and there's an entire community of people who are fans of these trucker videos. And they'll comment, and they'll say like, awesome route, dude. (laughs) (laughs) So I watched a lot of these, because I wanted to get a sense of what these different highways Mm -hmm. looked like. And it's fascinating. There's so much in the world that we don't even realize (laughs) is happening.
0: But did you go to China? Yeah, Uh yes.
4: I went to China. My first time in China is the first time that my parents had ever been to China, too. I went with them. And it was kind of amazing. It was amazing to go back to this world that I had heard so much about. And then it was also amazing. You know, the way that my parents grew up in Taiwan, it really was they were taught about China as if any moment they might return in the same way, you know, next year in Jerusalem, (laughs) I think it's Mm -hmm. a similar kind of thing, right? And so they knew the geography of China, like, as well as I know, probably better than I know, the geography of like California.
1: Mm -hmm. And the route that they go on, of course, is the anti-Kerouac route. As well, right? It goes right back back, uh,
4: west to east instead of east to west.
1: And I wanted to ask you why you think the Los Angeles no, a review of books is the greatest. (laughs) No, I I wanted to know what your father thinks of Charles Wang because it's not exactly a loving portrait. I mean, it's in part a loving portrait. I disagree.
4: I think it's a very loving portrait,
1: but you know,
4: only in the sense that I think that in order to write any character. You have to truly adore them when you're writing yes. them. And I truly feel that with all of the characters, and particularly yes, with
1: Charles. Yes, I felt that as well.
0: What turned, What didn't you like about Charles? Just just,
4: to... <laughs> it's okay, I, you can tell I, me. I'll, love, I'll still like you after. I
1: love your dad. I really love your dad. I just want <laughs> to put that on dad. the record. But no, I mean, he, he can be self-deluding he can be Mm -hmm. underhanded Mm -hmm. so
4: I love all of those things and I'm not just saying that (laughs) to be contrary because the other way to put that is he is larger than life he takes any opportunity that's put in front of him Mm -hmm. it's a little bit of a con artist in a way that hurts no one you know
0: I like his parenting I think he's a (laughs) good father I do he does he
4: truly loves his children so much but I gotta say my dad and Charles Wang is very much not my father but we actually have never—we've never talked about it in those terms. Okay. How do you feel about? it? Get back to us about that. Okay? <laughs> I'll ask him.
1: Jade Chang, the Wangs versus the world.
0: We will close out the show with this week's classic poetry drop.
1: C.P. Kafavi was a poet who was born in 1863 in Alexandria in what is now Egypt and became Egypt during his lifetime, but was then part of the Ottoman Empire to Greek parents. He died there in 1933, a few years after it had become a British protectorate. He wrote only 150 or so poems, and most of them were published after his death. He did a few in newspapers and privately printed some for friends, but most of them were published after he died. This poem, called Waiting for the Barbarians, was written in 1898, and yet it continues, I think, to have a surprising resonance. No doubt. Well, see if you don't think so. Many know the title from South African novelist J.M. Kutsi's 1980 novel of the same name, which is one of the many, many books and poems and essays that responded to it in one way or another. I think it's a bit of a Trump-era poem for us.
5: Waiting for the Barbarians by C.P. Gabafi What are we waiting for, assembled in the forum? The Barbarians are due here today. Why isn't anything going on in the Senate? Why are the senators sitting there without legislating? Because the Barbarians are coming today. What's the point of senators making laws now? Once the barbarians are here, they'll do the legislating. Why did our emperor get up so early? And why is he sitting enthroned at the city's main gate, in state, wearing the crown? Because the barbarians are coming today, and the emperor's waiting to receive their leader. He's even got a scroll to give him, loaded with titles, with imposing names why have our two consuls and praetors come out today wearing their embroidered, their scarlet togas? Why have they put on bracelets with so many amethysts, rings sparkling with magnificent emeralds? Why are they carrying elegant canes beautifully worked in silver and gold? Because the barbarians are coming today, and things like that dazzle the barbarians. But why don't our distinguished orators turn up as usual to make their speeches, say what they have to say? Because the barbarians are coming today, and they're bored by rhetoric and public speaking. Why this sudden bewilderment, this confusion? How serious people's faces have become. Why are the streets and squares emptying so rapidly, everyone going home lost in thought? Because night has fallen, and the barbarians haven't come. And some of our men who have just returned from the border say there are no barbarians any longer. Now what's going to happen to us without barbarians? Those people were a kind of solution.
1: That was Waiting for the Barbarians by C.P. Kafavi that was really well read, don't you think?
0: I loved that reading.
1: By Daniel Davis, translated by Edmund Keeley and Philip Sherrard. And I don't think we really even have to comment on it, do we?
0: One wants to quote it, certainly. One wants to say something like, why did the senators sit there without legislating?
1: <laughs> it's remarkably contemporary. Yes.
0: We have come to the end of another edition of the LARB Radio Hour. We would like to thank author Robbie Alamedine, author Jade Chang.
1: And we'd also like to thank Andrew Manikos and Stephanie Singer.
0: We want to thank our engineer, Ernesto Orleano, Alan Minsky, our producer and questionable moral center, Jim Lane, executive producer, Emerson College in the heart of Hollywood for the use of its beautiful facilities. I'm Laurie Weiner for Tom Lutz. Thank you for listening.